What is up, everyone? Welcome to Expect More Candid Conversations, Exploring Systemic Challenges at ASU. I'm RJ. I'll be one of the moderators. I'm Jess. I'm going to be another moderator. So to begin, we're going to be kind of exploring what the new vision and meaning of Expect More is. Expect More is a community organization driven and inspired to protect student rights, promote civil dialogue, and increase civic engagement. Basically, what we want to do is educate by providing a platform for students to identify and discuss problems and social justice issues within the university, both at the student and administrative level. We want to engage through the use of digital media and organize social campaigns to disseminate information and move students to action. We want to work to improve and evolve to, and seek to make university campuses more inclusive. The purpose of today's dialogue is to discuss the racism and discrimination on ASU's campus, both within student organizations and as an institution. So we're going to start off by introducing some of our panelists today. To start off, we have Karuna Pyle. Karuna Pyle is a senior studying business analytics and marketing with a certificate in cross-sector leadership. He's been involved on campus as a lead community assistant in the Next Generation Service Corps, Devil's Advocate, and he's also an Alpha Kappa Psi. Then we have Araceli Lopez. She's a graduated senior from Xavier College Prep High School. She's a first generation student and will attend ASU Barrett in the fall and will be majoring in biological sciences where she will be a part of the leadership scholarship program. She's been an active member of Aliento for about two years now and is passionate about social justice and spreading awareness on injustices our community endures. Next we have Caitlin Kubley. It, who is a rising junior majoring in interdisciplinary studies with concentrations in criminal justice and socio-legal studies. Currently, she is a treasurer for both the Af Black African Coalition and the Black Undergraduate Law Society. We also have John Leach, who is a rising senior at ASU studying business communications. When he's not in the library or giving campus tours to prospective Sun Devils, he really enjoys trying out new recipes and buying useless stuff off the internet. John is also a student worker with career and professional development services in a Scorpio, so keep an eye on him. Next, we have Sonovia Aiden, who's an incoming junior double majoring in political sciences and journalism and mass communication, who is the director of sustainability for Tempe's undergraduate student government, as well as the public relations chair for the NAACP and treasurer for the Black African Coalition. And then we have Cornelius Foxworth. He is a senior majoring in psychology with a double minor in business and criminal justice. He's the former president of African-American men at ASU and the current president of the Black Undergraduate Law Society and currently serves as the vice president of the Black African Coalition. He is also a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity and PSYCHI, the International Honor Society in Psychology. So to start off with, we're going to be going on with our first question. In light of the recent protests and demonstrations against systemic racism and police brutality across the country, how do you feel about ASU PD and ASU's relationship with Tempe PD? Um, I'll start. Um, I think that ASU, ASU PD and Tempe PD's relationship, um, it's there. I think that there can definitely be some more communication that could allow for better relationships um, so that everyone's on the same page. Um, but overall, I think that there's just room for growth. And yeah, Sonovia or Caitlin, I don't know that. Yeah, just bouncing off of that, everything Karina said that things definitely could just be better. I guess I'll put it that way. There's a lot of room for improvement. Um, I know that Cornelius and our president have been um, actively working towards having those conversations on where the improvement could be. So they wouldn't just be blindly making up, you know, where they think they could be doing better. Yeah, I agree with both what Cornelius and Caitlin says. There's always room for growth. Um, I know that there is a national cry for growth um, within all police departments within the nation. Um, 
And I definitely think that Tempe PD and ASU PD are not exempt of that growth. Um, I'm excited to see how ASU PD and Tempe PD work with ASU's Black community and also Tempe's Black community and then Phoenix PD's Black community to help mend that relationship and see what the individual needs of each community really need um, because different justice looks different in every community. Um, but I am really excited to see as the school year goes on um, how ASUPD plans to help mend that relationship. Yeah, I would love to echo off of that as well. Um, I can definitely, along with a room for growth and improvement, I also think there's a, a need for kind of a shift in motivations behind uh, Tempe PD um, and ASUPD. Um, and really, uh, kind of like you mentioned, focusing on what, the com what communities actually need instead of sitting at a light and you know, giving tickets to everyone who's jaywalking, it's how do we make all of our communities actually feel safe um, on campus, whether it's at night or whatever it is that you may be doing, um, and actually better serving the population as a whole. All right, so to follow up, what are some other systemic challenges that you see at ASU? I think that there are a lot of, I mean, that's a really good question, like which systemic challenges are at ASU and a predominantly white institution. I think that's just going to be there. And I think that it's up to the university to try and um, minimize the disparities that will already exist. Um, I think that ASU has a lot of work to do. And I think that ASU has a lot of self-reflection to do as an institution on how they either contribute or perpetuate racism um, on their students, especially their students of color, which are the most vulnerable students on campus at most times. Um, there are a lot of systemic issues. I don't know if I can just list all of them. To add on to that, um, a suggestion I would give is maybe partnering with existing nonprofit organizations or multiple ones to ensure change in policies that can overall make the university either more inclusive for both students and administration, or they can also learn different ways um, to take steps to enact them and execute them properly in order to enact that inclusion for both. I agree. I think with one thing, echoing off of what Samovia said, I think some of the systemic issues we see with ASU is just simply within the charter statement itself and how we choose to implement that. Um, I can't quote it verbatim, but it's basically the way in which we say that we're, de we're defined by who we include not, or who we ex You guys know the statement, but I feel like there's a lot. <laughs> um, I feel like there's an issue where we purposefully leave out certain groups of people and what they actually need to say we're being inclusive because we don't want, because administration doesn't want to give those things to those groups of people that they need, uh, what they need. And I think that's how, I think that's just like one of the biggest issues that we have is that this vision of inclusion is really, it's problematic in the way we're going about it. And it's, it's sad to be honest, to say the very least. So Cornelius, I have a follow-up to that. Um, have there ever been any instances where you, you felt like you needed something or the group, the organization that you're a part of needed something and the charter kind of held back that resource? I would say one of the things, well, for example, in light of everything that's going on, uh, there's a need for black counselors um, 
within ASU counseling. And there's a lack of that. There's about two to three, if I'm not mistaken, Sonovia and Kaylin, two to three. And so many black students on campus don't even know that you can request to have a black counselor. And so just simply like knowing that information and making sure people know that is one thing. Um, likewise, just having more black faculty and staff outside of just Africana study courses is important. Um, and we see a lack of that as well. Um, having be, I think the biggest thing is just having representation and the support system that we need is a big thing. Caitlin, do you want to add on to that? It actually, what you just said made me think of, we had a, um, a support circle. And I know that one student specifically had mentioned how like even something as simple as within her major, right? She was, I think it was a history major. Um, even just like the lack of classes that she could take in regards to learning about history, you know, like through like the African-American lens or just learning about like African and African-American history other than just like the AFR classes, which are obviously great, but just like, you know, how she was just so disappointed that there is so much history to be explored within our communities, but is just, you know, is just not available to students, not just, you know, black and, um, and African students, for all students, you know, it's, it's good information that should be available that is not just, you know, in the African African American studies major and it's just not. And like going off of how the charter kind of enables a lot of the systemic issues, I know a really big issue a lot of folks in the ASU's black community had was a lot of the very blanket statement, um, the very blanket statements released by our university um, regarding the current situations happening um, in our nation right now and how a lot of the statements didn't even mention the Black Lives Matter movement. They didn't even mention racism. They didn't condemn racism in any way and they kind of used the charter in a way that's like we, we don't define ourselves by who we exclude but who we include and that's great, but I think that there's a time and place where you need to name things and you need to put a name to things you absolutely need to say. Right now, we need to protect our black students and we need to condemn racism in America. And the charter kind of allows ASU to fly by and use umbrella statements. I know a lot of people were really upset with the athletics department because they kind of just released that portion of the charter on Twitter. And that's not enough. That's not enough to say and then not have any clear behavioral changes within the university. And I think a lot of the frustration is this colorblind umbrella approach to racism has never worked and it's certainly not going to work now. I guess that sort of bleeds into the other the next question, which basically what what do you think of ASU's response, you know, to these nationwide demonstrations and how, um, you know, do you feel about the response as an institution? Um, going off of what Zenobia said, I know it was just, it was just really lacking, again, like just using that, you know, um, that part of the charter and then not specifically saying the community that that was being affected by police brutality, it was just really, um, frustrating because if I go to a, a university who claims we are this diverse university and we love all of our students and we back up all of our students you can't back up someone and not 
actually back them up, you know, like actually say we are with this X, Y, Z right now in this given example, the black community, you, and I feel like maybe, I don't know if they, they were scared because, you know, a lot of, um, groups, institutions, people are, are scared, you know, to say specific communities because they don't want to step on people's toes, but saying those, like that specific community is not stepping on toes. It's the acknowledgement that we need, the acknowledgement that we um, deserve that was just not in the statement. And in going beyond that, kind of the, a lot of the, the backing or the reasoning is, oh, actions speak louder than words. Just wait, we'll do something. And it's no, the action that you need to be doing is saying Black Lives Matter, coming out and full on saying it. Um, and part of the frustrating thing that I've seen is that there are departments and individuals in departments that are being encouraged to not post on their social media, to not be coming out with this hashtag or with anything or going to protest because of the, the lens that it puts on uh, for them and the lens that people see them in. And it's, who cares at this point? This is so much, it's so much further beyond the, the lens of what we see people in um, and understanding that this is, again, a nationwide uh, issue, um, that it needs to be condemned. Um, and kind of going off of your earlier statements of the difference between diversity and inclusion, um, it's awesome, and ASU is all about you know promoting this idea that you know all these different demographics. ASU is the number one institution in the nation for international students, and all these cool facts. But at the end of the day, diversity and inclusion are two incredibly different things. And in order for anything to happen, you need to have both. You can't just have one or the other. I think jumping on top of that too, what I think I'm sort of seeing this is sort of become more of a PR issue for a lot of people at ASU than it has been a social issue. And sitting on this charter just saying, hey, look at our charter, this is what we stand for. Apparently, it's allowed ASU to, in fact, ignore some of the things that are going on, even on their own campus, and in fact, violate parts of their own charter in doing so. I think that there's definitely aspects of it that they need to step up on and hear students on. The charter says that they're assuming fundamental responsibility for the communities it serves and the health of those communities, and yet they refuse to really say something about it. And in fact, they do more um, that hurts diversity and inclusion by inviting ICE on campus multiple times a year during career fairs to recruit and stuff, um, to contracting with Aramark, who works within private prisons and works with um, unpaid prison labor. All these things need to be fixed. And it's, it's interesting that Michael Crow sent out messages saying that they want to hear what students want to say now. So I hope that they go forward actually listening to students and inviting conversation on how they can improve. Karuna, I have a follow-up actually for you. Um, as someone who spent a lot of time as a CA and really spends a lot of time in that residential hall area, um, do you think that this, is, this has been an issue leading up to this point? Do you think that the university is really listening to the students? I think there's, again, there's a lot of room for growth in residence halls too. Um, you know, I think there's multiple angles to look at this for one, the way that ASU police is um, in partnership with the residence halls, to me has been a little bit problematic sometimes, you know, when they talk, they train is on how to handle situations where residents are non-compliant or they think there might be drugs. The first day is threaten to call the police. Um, we're gonna say knock three times and if they don't answer, we're gonna get a supervisor and come down and help. If you don't answer them, then we're gonna have to get ASU PD in here. And knowing the kind of fear that that can instill in people, I think, um, they need to be aware of what that does um, and why it might not be the best thing to threaten the police on someone because you think that they have 
drugs in the room, right? On the other end too, I think that there's a lot of room for growth within the inclusivity um, area as a whole um, through all communities. I know they have you know, gender inclusive housing. They don't really promote that very much. Um, they have counseling services um, help sometimes, but not as much as it should. So I think that definitely it's a complex issue with housing. And I think that it's, it's part of the whole system of it needs to work with students to improve what they do to better these situations. Araceli, as an, I'm interested as an incoming freshman, do you feel like, um, sort of like as an outsider's perspective, do you feel like the university um, is listening, willing to listen to student voices in this moment and in this time? So as of now, during the transition to fresh, freshman year, um, I feel like ASU overall has been very um, inclusive and has like given all, us all the resources we need in order to feel like um, that we're ready to for the new transition. Um, when it comes to like hearing everyone's like feedback on like ASU and their experiences with ASU, it makes me kind of like nervous to see how um, everyone wants like more improvement and sees that ASU needs to work with students more. I did not expect that from ASU and now that I'm seeing that um, I'm kind of like wow like I need to be more aware of how ASU is gonna, uh, how open they're gonna be to hearing uh, our stories and being inclusive when it comes to trying to make change in order for us to feel safe or etc. So um, I don't know I just want ASU overall to hear our stories and make sure that we are able to uh, feel safe and have the resources we need in order for us to feel comfortable and be happy with our experience at ASU. And then I have a question that's framed for everyone. So do you think that ASU is promoting inclusive practices and taking student input as we're recruiting first years to come to the, the campus? I mean, I know I personally have volunteered um, with a group on campus called Sparks. Some of you maybe have heard of that group. Super awesome. One thing I really, really liked about their group specifically is that a lot of times like when um, ASU is like going and recruiting these freshmen, it's in like these very, I don't want to say just like wealthy communities or just communities where students are expected to go to schools, but that's just the perception that I had, but through Sparks, I know that their program goes and sees so many different types of students from so many different kinds of communities. And that would not have been made possible without the students that decided to create the organization and obviously the community, I mean, the, the institution ASU had to back them in order for, you know, the uh, organization to be where it is now. Like I went to schools from like in Maryville and schools I, I'm not familiar with Phoenix all the way. I just remember going there and it was really, really far. But I've gone to some really interesting schools with just like such diverse communities and was just able to talk to those students to like tell them a place, um, ASU is a place that you can grow and a place you can learn and you can thrive. I mean, although there definitely is room for improvement, I have enjoyed my time at ASU thus far. And there are people that look like you that are here. Um, yeah. I'm wondering on that, have you heard um, or have you had a lot of support from ASU's recruiting office on that? Because I know I have friends who are in the recruiting office who have had various feedback about it from saying that, you know, they're sent to Brophy all the time to talk about ASU, but they don't really recruit from low-income schools or anything like that. Um, so the way that 
Sparks Works. So it's like a big, so you, you sign up right online and then you'll go and you'll do like a, a little orientation where they like teach you like what Sparks is and how to um, handle situations with students. Cause they'll ask you, you know, any types of questions you're dealing with kids K through 12. So you get asked maybe questions as, oh my goodness, what can I major be to, hey, are there parties on campus, you know? So you do that whole process. Then they give you a link to where there's a bunch of schools and programs that you can sign up to do. Now, yes, they still do go to schools um, where like Nebrophy and other really nice schools where students would probably just be expected that they're going to go to ASU or some other type of higher education. But I know I specifically always look for schools where I know students probably would not have those resources that those other schools do. And then I make it a point to go to those. And I've volunteered with them seven, eight, nine times now. And I've always like been able to find um, those schools. So they're there, but they're, I, but you know, you have to look through the list. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and begin the second segment and talk about identifying the solutions that students and we want to see. Um, I will start off with, what are your hopes for the future of ASU? My hopes for ASU in the future, I, I, that's, there's a lot of things I hope for. <laughs> I hope to see that one day there is some form of true inclusion and we can see that through the way professors um, interact with their students, the way students interact with students and the way the president of our university interacts with students and what he says to support our students. Um, I hope that eventually there could be some form of multicultural center so that all underrepresented groups could feel like there's a safe place for them to go um, and just to feel comfortable with people that look like them. Um, I just really hope that like issue can be a place where everyone is informed all the way and um, they're just, uh, they're educated and not ignorant to the things going on around them and the past and history that's happened. I mean, like it's, there's a lot of things I hope for. So I think overall it's just more awareness of the world we live in and true inclusion and diversity. So. To add on to what Cornelia said, I would hope that ASU uh, ensures the needs and concerns of the impacted students and not only have their stories heard, but also have them be a part of the conversations of making ASU a safe and inclusive campus and engage more on civic engagement and health awareness and for everyone to feel included. And for the USG, I would hope um, and would like them to openly support undocumented and DACA ASU students as well and include them in advocating for their needs and concerns. Yeah, I agree with everything um, Araceli and Cornelia said. Um, I also hope that ASU could grow to the point of having students doing a lot of this like hard work and having these hard conversations. I think so often predominantly white institutions rely so heavily on their um, coalitions of minorities or, um, yeah, minorities or students of color to really spearhead the work that they see needs to be done. But I hope that ASU can kind of shift its thinking into already being able to identify a lot of the issues of diversity and inclusion on campus. So students can just be students. I think that there's sort of a burden of being a student of color on a, on a campus that doesn't necessarily identify issues on hand. And 
you have to start all these petitions, you have to figure out who you need to meet with, you need to get enough public outcry in order to really spearhead change. And I think that, um, I hope that ASU takes this time especially to really self-identify as an institution and figure out what they need to do to be more reactive to um, these national issues. Going off of that, I would just say briefly that um, I feel as though they've been, uh, like the institution has really wanted to listen, but what my hope is that it won't, you won't just, they won't just be listening anymore and they'll actually take action with what we're saying. Cause it's like right now it's, oh yes, we are so willing to have these conversations with you and you guys have such great ideas, but it always just seems like we're hit with a thousand and one ways why we can't do it and not like a million and one ways of why we can and why we should be able to and different ideas like, okay, you know, multicultural center, a big thing is where are we gonna put it, right? That's, they're always bringing that up to us. So instead of just telling us that, maybe helping us find a place that we can put it, helping us find alternative solutions. I know that, you know, our coalition um, president and vice president, we're working towards finding um, temporary spaces for us. But again, just like, not just saying we're going to listen to you, but we're actually going to help you and help you find those resources and things like that. Um, going off of both of you, I think definitely bringing the conversation front and center um, and these quote unquote difficult or uncomfortable situations and need to be at the forefront. I'm a straight white male. Underst it's the first step is obviously understanding the privilege that's there, um, but also being able to say, okay, let's, you know, make this happen and everything. And I like, kind of like you mentioned, Caitlin, ASU has got to stop stepping back and listening and hoping that by doing that, they're saving face, kind of like Karuna mentioned being a PR issue. It's okay, now is the time to say something. Multicultural Center would be awesome, if we can't figure out where we're going to put it, help us, help us. Okay. Funding is going to be an issue. Let's work on that together and make this actually happen um, and really start to facilitate the conversations and to make those happen. Um, and then kind of uh, Synovia, what you were saying about the fact that it's such a kind of a burden that ASU steps back and lets the students handle everything. There is a time and a place absolutely for students to, you know, start those conversations and to really get involved. But there's also a time for us to be students and kick back and trust in this institution that to handle this for us. Um, and the fact that it's not, it's the fact that, you know, entire student organizations that have been run for 50 years are changing their entire constitution and everything because ASU won't do anything um, is obviously a problem. And it's kind of stepping back and saying, we need to take action, whether it's ruining a reputation or not. Because I guarantee the, the history and the story is changing right now. And any donor or whoever doesn't like it is going to be replaced tenfold by people who are going to back and support it anyway. One last thing I want to add on to that is one day I hope that the university could put its students first instead of um, instead of money. Uh, it's been very clear over the past couple months, especially going on with everything going on with COVID, um, that they prioritize money over their students. Um, so I just hope that one day, like, that wouldn't be a thing anymore. Like, we could deal with people and care about people and students, you know, their students first, but yeah. And Karuna, I wanted to ask you about something too, about looking towards the future of ASU. Something that I've seen you post a lot about is Aramark. Um, I'd love to hear your, your vision for that, kind of what 
that's that process is looking like right yeah so in um with everything going on um in regard to you know the systemic racism across the country me and a couple of students looked into the history of how asu's been involved and unfortunately the dining vendor that we contract with in case anyone doesn't know aramark they also contract with around 400 prisons around the company um, around the country and they they use um, unpaid inmate labor there they tell them hey you work for us maybe you'll get a shorter sentence they do they've had complaints from feeding prisoners maggots rocks sexually abusing prisoners and staff um, discriminating against staff and this comes back to asu because a lot of our freshmen and even upperclassmen live on campus and when you live on campus you're required to buy a meal plan a meal plan that directly funds airmark so just seeing the problematic sides behind Aramark, and this is not even difficult to research. If you just look up Aramark controversy, there's hundreds of articles. NYU, they, they fed students fried chicken and Kool-Aid for Black History Month, um, horrible things like this. And they're, the stuff that we're, you know, we're trying to get involved and trying to fix. Um, but you know, going back to this petition, um, the group of students that I'm working with, we've put up a petition um, because again, you know, like Caitlin said, that seems to be the only way to really get ASU's attention. Um, and we've had about 1,500 signatures in the past week to try to replace Aramark with something that's more sustainable, um, that's not going to be discriminating against students, um, that's actually innovative because ASU is actually lagging behind on this. A lot of other um, universities have already gotten rid of Aramark, have switched to a different system. We want to get ASU to have a dialogue with us and with all of the other students who have a problem with this company, and as well as making it optional for freshmen and on-campus students to buy into this meal plan system. Um, and so far, we haven't really heard back from ASU yet. We started off by um, having a ton of emails sent to specific people who are in charge of the administration, Michael Crow, Mark Searle, um, and the housing department, and then um, moved on to this other petition, which is now going around. Um, and hopefully, you know, my vision is that the administration will sit down with students um, who represent all different students across the university, who have their own opinions, um, who need certain things out of it, to see how this is harming people, how we are playing part in a nationwide prison industrial complex that shouldn't be funded by students at a university um, and ultimately get together and work on a way to improve so that we can not have meals on campus that are funding this. And hopefully it goes forward well. We're still in the beginning of this, but it's something I'm really passionate about. And there's a lot of other students who care about this topic too. So hopefully it goes somewhere. All right, going into the next question, um, how can individuals and student organizations combat racism and discrimination to make ASU more inclusive? Um, firstly, if you are an organization that doesn't have um, maybe a lot of minority students, just acknowledging your privilege, right? A lot of the problem is like, people are like, I'm not racist and I'm not this and I'm not that. And sometimes it's not even that, it's just like, just acknowledging you know, where you are compared to where I am, merely because of the color of your skin, um, I would just say would be the first thing that comes to my head. I don't know um, what Coroner Sonovia is thinking. I would just say, um, Kaylin's right, um, but I would also add just literally having the conversations. I think these conversations are hard, but they need to be had. And especially if you, if like Caitlin said, you don't have a lot of underrepresented people in your organization. Um, I think having those conversations is like the first step and naming things is the first step. And um, 
the road to being a, a good ally or being a comrade, as I like to say, because I don't really like the word ally, but a, someone that's in this fight for the long run is really a deep self-reflection. And that can really hurt people's feelings. It can hurt your feelings to think of how, wow, I've really perpetuated racism or wow, I've really perpetuated um, transphobia or xenophobia. And I think that that needs to be done first within yourself, but then also calling in those folks that maybe haven't had those conversations before and acknowledging that different people are on different levels. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have had tons of conversation, conversations about race dynamics in America. They could go, they could write a dissertation about the ways we need to abolish the police. And then there's those people that literally can't even call people black. They prefer to call people African-American because it makes them uncomfortable and that's okay. But it's not okay to ignore it and sit in that ignorance. I think that the first step with combating racism on campus, if we don't have that institutional support, is definitely within the students ourselves and um, calling in each other to have those open and honest discussions. Because I know that that can be hard and really uncomfortable, especially in like a 300 person lecture when someone says something maybe a little problematic. But um, it's important in those call in moments that like you call in a classmate or you even a professor, those really stick with people. Pattern what to Zenobia said, um, when having those conversations, also to listen with both your heart and mind and truly be attentive to what those other people have to say, even though the perspectives can be kind of daunting or just um, problematic. And also building community overall and supporting those being impacted by the policy or unjust systems. I think too, um, on the student organization side, I know you mentioned that, I think part of it is recognizing the immense ability to make an impact that a group of hundreds of students or even 50 students can do um, and choosing to take action rather than just say something and then continue to take action um, in moments that aren't just you know big moments in history, but just ongoing throughout the time that you're a student organization on campus. I think onto that real quickly, I think it's really important that um, just just like partnering with other organizations that have similar interests to you that do have more minorities. If your organization doesn't have many minorities, these would be extremely helpful. That way you can see, you can meet people that you normally wouldn't talk to. You can relate to people that with the same interests and things like that. I did want to follow up though with Cornelius and what Zenobia and with what Araceli said is that, um, do you guys have any, any words of advice for people for, uh, POC students or non-Black people of color students that are in an organization where it's predominantly white, um, do you have any suggestions for them about how they can approach these conversations? I'd say to overall stay hopeful because I feel like with hope, uh, motivation comes right after and change is overall slow. So just to stay hopeful and keep each other on check and checking up on yourself, your friends and family. Yeah, I would just echo off of that, that um, being the only one it can be really hard, um, but it's important that you're experiencing discomfort in order to continue growth on both sides, right? So if you're the only person of color in your group, you're going to probably experience some discomfort when opening up that dialogue to your organization or your colleagues about wanting to have courageous conversations centered around race or other identity um, conversations and I think that allowing folks to experience that discomfort sit in that discomfort is really important not every conversation is going to go the way that you want it to and not every conversation is going to end off 
with a conclusion. And I, one thing that someone taught me is um, expect and accept um, non-closure. Um, this is a marathon, not a race. Um, or this is a marathon, not a sprint, sorry. <laughs> but um, the fight for like true justice and true equality is not in one day, but you absolutely can be the starting line for someone's journey. And I think that that's really powerful and really important to think about when approaching these conversations. And then I have a question for John. Um, something that you mentioned in the, in the kind of a few minutes ago was these organizations that have been running for 50 years having to now change their, their systems. Uh, you're president of one of the, the largest organizations on campus with Devil's Advocates. What has that process looked like? What has that process of reframing what Advos has historically done? Um, what, what have been some of the struggles that you face with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just kind of for some context, the way that our, um, our recruitment works um, each semester is kind of the normal tabling, um, getting people interested, and then they go through our interview process um, and done is done. Um, but we've also kind of noticed a trend uh, over the however long this organization has been around is that the people that we are getting are predominantly white. Um, they're going through people who are, you know, just that's who is deciding they want to interview through. Um, it's not that people who go through the interview process um, and who are chosen happen to be that way. It's the entire interview uh, pool um, kind of represents that, that one majority there. And so it's a lot of stepping back. Um, and I was, so I was in charge of recruitment last year um, and kind of saw that and went, wait a minute, this is not something that I'm necessarily comfortable with. So what can I do? Um, and then, First, also acknowledging that I wasn't sure how to go about that the right way, being a straight white male. I'm, it's, it wasn't necessarily kind of, not to say taught to me, but it wasn't necessarily in my forefront of saying, this is how I'm going to go about it. Uh, and so it was at first initiating those conversations um, and then moving forward and saying, okay, let's, you know, I want to partner with our different coalitions or I want to really reach out beyond what we've been doing two different orgs, two different bodies, two different communities and saying, hey, you know, even though this is the way it's been done the last few years, that ends now. Um, and so I was just recently elected president of this student organization um, and it's further on continuing that conversation. Um, and so this actual, this last class that we just had that joined has been our most diverse in the 54 years that we've been an organization, um, which was an awesome, again, first step. Uh, Karuna, you hit it right on the head. It's cool to have your one-time thing and be done with it, but it's so much, you have to keep that conversation going. Um, and so one of the big things that I'm working on and kind of my platform was, how do we keep this moving beyond just tabling or beyond just a quick presentation um, and what that looks like? So it's hosting different events, co-events, um, or really putting it out there and acknowledging the flaws that we have now and being able to move forward. Um, and of course, I encourage other student organizations uh, like the other large ones, the quote unquote powerhouses of campus to do that exact same thing. All right, I wanna talk a little bit about um, the power of social media and especially the last few weeks. What have you seen from your peers on social media in the past few weeks and what does it mean to you? So what I've seen so far, I feel like social media, um, like the whole momentum is diminishing and the media is not covering as much as it should. And that being said, I feel like people are reaching like their capacity of bandwidth of things they care about in a way. And 
it's kind of quickly moving their attention to other things. And it kind of breaks my heart to see that I feel like part of this is being forgotten and this is like horrible because obviously we want to keep spreading awareness. And it kind of makes me realize that almost as if the pain uh, that's being expressed doesn't matter or is not valued. So I feel like the momentum needs to be um, up brought and shined again instead of being um, slowly like diminishing into being forgotten. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I want to jump on that too. I think social media, it seems to be kind of a double-edged sword here. Because on one end, you have a lot of people who are very vocal, um, who are able to get their voice out. And I think it's definitely improved the way that everyone can get involved in the conversation. But again, the attention span is kind of short. And for a lot of people out there too, it's become kind of a trendy thing to talk about. Um, I've noticed, unfortunately, some peers who, you know, they posted a black square on Blackout Tuesday in between two mirror selfies and then didn't say anything else, right? Um, or people who, you know, they will post hashtag Black Lives Matter and then their friend will post up something really terrible and they won't, they won't call it out in the comments or anything like that, right? So I think it's, it's very powerful, but it also, people need to be able to use that um, to actually speak out in a way that's not just performative, but also doing something with their voice. Same as just being on campus. Yeah, I was just gonna say that they're absolutely right. Um, I that's like a perfect way to describe it. It's a double-edged sword. Um, I know for myself as like a black woman, it, it's really hard to kind of turn away from social media because I feel like I'm then not paying attention to these things. But then um, it, it it reaches a certain point where it's like there's just so much black death and so much black trauma on social media where like oftentimes like I would go on Twitter to laugh and now it's just not it's it that's not the platform that does that for me and most of the platforms that I would use to do that are more serious now which I think is great because people are calling attention to it but there's not really an escape which I guess can also be a good thing like you shouldn't be able to turn away um but but taking those social media breaks have been really hard for me to do as someone that like prides myself on being like an organizer or an activist just because it feels like every moment I turn away is like a moment lost in the struggle of like achieving true justice or paying attention. Um, for me, social media has been really helpful. I don't know if anyone else can relate, but a lot of like major medias that I watch like MSNBC or like CNN have kind of stopped um, showing protests because a lot of the looting and the rioting has ended but on social media um so in your head you're like oh well the protests are have ended but on social media it's kind of showed me that there are still like protests in major cities going on literally every single day um and they're peaceful i mean most of them are peaceful and i think that that's a really good reminder for me that like there are still people out here doing the really good really good work to achieve justice and um just because these like major media corporations aren't showing them doesn't mean that they're not happening so something that we've noticed is that there's a potential for an echo chamber in social media um that there's a p potential that you're only seeing the, the posts that your followers or people that are similar to them are posting how do we break that bond or how do we break that that limit on social media make sure that we're getting um, other opinions, other information? For me, I think that one, one way I do that is to engage with everybody, no matter what they're saying on social media. Part of me, when I see someone post something really bad about what's going on, um, insensitive, even like racist stuff, I just want to block them and move on. But um, 
personally, um, what I've started to do more is to instead like respond to them if if they're like deserving of a response, um, you know, and, and say, this is what's wrong with what you've said. Um, and similarly, I think that a lot of people who have certain opinions tend to only follow other people who have the same opinions and they tend to comment on each other's posts on Facebook or reply on Twitter and just say, hey, you're great, you know, you, you know what's up. But a lot of times, you know, it's hard to engage with people who are, in my opinion, wrong, um, who are on the other side of a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, sometimes, of course, it's, it's right if you don't want to see what people are saying, you know, people are saying some damaging things. But I think personally, one thing that I've been trying to do more is to challenge people who are um, not really stepping up to the plate. Adding on to that, I, I completely agree. Something I've done is, um, if I'm on Twitter, I'll go and look at, like, All Lives Matter or something like that, like, the complete opposite view of what I believe, just to, like, see what people are saying and try to, like, attempt to understand if that makes sense or try to get some, like, I don't know, like, try to see what other people are thinking that aren't thinking the same way I am. Um, just so I can stay informed about the way certain people view things, you know, like it's very clear like if you're seeing Black Lives Matter, you people know exactly what you're saying and why you're saying it. However, when people are saying All Lives Matter, I'm not sure why they're saying it because to me it just sounds ridiculous. So I have to check myself and be like, okay, why are they saying this? This is their background. This is why they say this, and this is why they believe what they believe. So it's just, I think it's really a matter of just like educating yourself on and have, educating yourself and making sure you're like you have perspective about why people do things they do one thing that i found in during my time or all my time on social media during all this is that so many more people at least it seems are willing to have the maybe not have the full-on conversation but are willing to back up from their own views um, i've had a number of instances where people are posting the the all lives matter or blue lives matter or something like that. Um, and kind of like Karuna mentioned, if it is deserving of a response, stepping back and you know saying, here is what's wrong with what you said, or here is the issue that comes with saying that. Um, and I found a lot of people are actually somewhat open-minded uh, to the idea of it. I've also found a lot of people who are the exact opposite end of the spectrum and anything you say in disagreement means that you're wrong, period. Um, but I'm hoping that with all this, with this, you know, this national outreach and this national kind of overtaking of social media, um, that it really starts to get in people's head that this isn't a fake issue. This isn't something that people have dreamt up or they're over-exaggerating or anything. This is hundreds of years of systemic racism and institutionalized racism in every single sector of life. Um, and then the last question, we just wanted to give room for anyone, if anyone had any final statements or anything you wanted to share with the viewers. Um, one thing I guess I'll share is, like we said, just be open and willing to have those uncomfortable conversations um, and call people out for when you see them saying questionable things. Uh, having those conversations, I think, will create the biggest change that we can see, you know. We can pass policies and everything else, but if you don't change the way like the majority of people think, the way people think in America, like it's the policies are great and everything, but you still have this same underlying problem. So I think that's just the biggest thing, not being scared and just being courageous. And uh, yeah. yeah, just going off of what Cornelia said, because I know 
I personally have even had to have conversations with people that are like close friends or even family members. And it can be hard to have those conversations with those people because you love them so much and you don't want to like hurt their feelings or whatever the case may be. I know that's, you know, with me personally, I'm biracial, like black and white. So like, you know, talking with one side of my, like my, the white side of my family sometimes has proven to be a challenge being very honest, you know, it is what it is. So just, I personally have just tried to meet them where they're at. Try not to get so frustrated because it. I feel like it's everywhere. So how can you not see that this stuff is wrong? But just trying to be as understanding as possible, as we've talked about earlier, like with, you know, looking at other, other people's point of views on their social media. And then um, even if they don't want to hear what I have to say, offering other resources or deciding, okay, let me let you sit on what I just told you. And then let's come back to it. Because again, this is a big conversation and it's not going to be fixed in like one simple 10 minute conversation that I had. So just maybe like the viewers trying to do the same thing. To add on to what Caitlin said, I'd say, yeah, it's important to keep yourself overall updated and informed about the actions that are happening towards these injustices and to overall be attentive and compassionate to the stories people are sharing and the perspectives. And I think right now is a really good time to challenge yourself. Um, I, I don't know about everyone else, but I just have a lot of time on my hands. So I've been really trying to like read up on different words that people are saying, like prison abolition, defunding. I didn't really know what defunding really was before this entire national outcry kind of happened. But um, I really took the time to read up on different um black power movements that took place and like the people that really set the foundation for what a lot of communities are asking for right now. Um, I think that educating yourself is a really important key just so you're then ready to take action. I think that um, just really just read. I There's a lot of books and I, I think that a really beautiful thing right now is that um, there's so many resources that are so accessible to a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people our age and so much younger just making community Google Docs with just pages on pages of free PDFs and like Netflix documentaries and just resources on how to educate yourself. And I love that that's so accessible, but it's really a, a, um, the biggest step is like within you to seek out that information. Um, yeah, the only thing I would add off of what everyone is here has said um, is that we're in a point of history right now that has never happened before. We are in uncharted territory as we're walking in. And so every, a lot of people's excuses are, this is the way it's always been, or this is how we do things. This is, it's never going to change. Um, forget that because we are changing. We are coming into an era where we're rewriting the narrative. Um, and so kind of uh, like Zenobia said, educate yourself, become a part of that, um, instead of just sitting back and relying on the past or old traditions to really dictate what you think. On top of that too, I think it's important to know that um, even though it can be easy to think that you're one person, you can't do anything about it yourself, never underestimate the power that you can have and the people around you can have to really make a change. And again, you know, like, like you all said, we're in a time where we're all sitting at home for the most part right now. We have a lot of time on our hands. Um, a group of five people, with passion can really make a difference, right? And a student organization with 200 people can make a huge difference, not even just at ASU, but in general in the community, right? So definitely if you care about something, 
it's important to know that you can actually do something about it. And if you want to do something about it, it'll probably make a difference. And with that, I wanted to thank our panelists for coming on to the first ever Candid Conversations. And I wanted to thank the viewers for taking the time to listen to Candid Conversations, exploring systemic challenges at ASU. This is gonna be the first of many. Having conversations is extremely important. Listening to perspectives is extremely important. So thank you guys for taking the time. It's been a pleasure.